Hi everybody, it's great to see you. Uh, my name's Paul, I'm part of the pastoral team here. And uh, if you're visiting, a real special welcome. You're joining us partway through uh, a series looking at the book of Joshua. And uh, we've come to chapter 5. And uh, it, it basically, the short section that we're looking at, it's a moment when uh, the men of the people of God uh, who had just crossed over the river that we looked at last week are circumcised. Uh, which is a really strange thing for us to think about in our generation. Um, and that's really why I find the Bible exciting, because it, it takes us into another world, a strange world, and yet at the same time it speaks to us in incredibly powerful ways for the world that we live in today. Uh, and that's what I want to journey through uh, as we work through this interesting little section. I think the first thing I want to just jump on it is for us to pause a minute and just reflect on the fact that we use our bodies in all sorts of ways to belong. Um, those of you who are old enough to remember the Human League, uh, Don't You Want Me Baby, which was kind of bashing its notes out of the great thing about MTV is you don't ostracize a whole younger generation because you've seen it as well. Phil Oakey with his kind of big strange haircut, well, that was kind of me a few years ago. Um, it, it was a kind of, it's a way of belonging, isn't it? And even right now, when you think about it, when you pause, pretty much most of us here today, in one way or another, we've chosen to cut our hair or do something, uh, and part of that is a statement of belonging. My school days were dominated with punk, the kind of punk explosion in the 1970s. Uh, Sex Pistols, Sham 69, all that kind of stuff. And uh, the, the, the motif there was outrageous, crazy, uh, anti-establishment hair. And yet, paradoxically, if we just stop, we, we realize that what was being said was, I don't belong to all of this stuff that's the establishment. I belong to something else. Isn't that fascinating? We use our bodies in all sorts of ways to say that we belong. A, few, uh, a couple of years ago, most of you would know that we have the uh, Cast Tigers carol service here. And uh, I walked in with one of the guys, huge guy, Maori guy, um, and he looked across the room, and in the far room, just in the doorway, was another guy. He wasn't a rugby player, actually. And he had his back to us, and his hands were in his pocket like that. And my friend could just about see the back of his arm here and a few tattoos that were on his body. And he said to me, our oh, brother, because he saw right across the room, and he recognized that these weren't just any other tattoos. These were significant statements of their heritage, who they were. That's fascinating, isn't it? That's the world that we live in, in all sorts of different ways. There, is a, there are ways that different people groups create statements of belonging in a particular way. And that's actually what this is about. It's a statement of belonging. We find that we get to, let's have a look at that text, chapter uh, 5 and verse 2. They've crossed over 
the Jordan. They'd entered into the land that God had promised to them. And we read, At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. There we have that moment. It's a tiny little statement, but the reality is, and get this, if we're wanting to understand Joshua, the whole of the rest of the book rests on what happens here. What happens here is essential for understanding the rest of the book. What the people are doing at this moment is they are reconnecting themselves to who they are. They're going back and they're saying, who are we? This straddling bunch of people who've crossed a river, who've entered into a land which God has said is theirs, but as far as all of the people in that land are concerned, that is not their land. They've just come out of slavery in Egypt. They've wandered 40 years with no home. There are, no, there are nobody people. Who are we? Joshua says at this moment, or rather the Lord says to Joshua, take this moment to reconnect with who you are. So we've got to say, well, what does that mean? Who are they? The only way we can understand it is a little reference in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 10 and 11. It says this. This is where God makes the promise to this people's ancestor, father, Abraham. God says to Abraham, this is my covenant with you. God says, this is my covenant with you. That's a pretty big promise, isn't it? It's a pretty big commitment when God says, I'm committing in covenant to you. And he says this, you and your descendants after you. This is my covenant. Let me read that again. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. The sign of the covenant between me and you. That's what God says to Abraham. And now they cross into the land and God says to Joshua, do this to the people so that they reconnect themselves with their heritage. So that they know who they are and who they are is rested on the fact that God has made a promise to them. That's it. Remember that God has made a promise to you. If you think about it, not too deeply, if you think about it, circumcision is something that can only happen once. That in itself is interesting. Because the covenant is once and it is a committed promise of God. And the people say, I enter into that and these people as they cross into this land, they say, I enter into that. I belong to that. And you say, well, hang on a sec. By very definition, it's real important and it is absolutely key. It's a big hot topic issue for us today. Notice there is no FGM here. Okay? This is the, the males who are being circumcised. 
You say, what? that sounds really strange. What about the women? How does that work? I think it works something like this. That we have to accept that we live in an ancient patriarchal world, firstly. But think about this. The male bears the pain for the sake of the family. And interestingly, this particular action of circumcision becomes one through physical relationship and unites the two in the promise that God has made to these. And at the same time, by definition, creates a promise to the next generation. Isn't it amazing? We, don't, we kind of don't enter into this world very often, do we? We don't enter into the ancient mind very often. But it is essential that we just pause and we say, this isn't just a thing that they do. This is a massive statement. It's, it's filled with symbolic significance. It's filled with God saying, I am making a promise to you. And when you become one in the flesh as a new family unit, that covenant is for you together as one. And that covenant carries on to your next generation and your next generation and your next generation. It is an incredible statement of belonging. It's an incredible statement of I believe and I rest on the promise that God has made to us. Circumcision. But isn't it interesting we said a minute ago that it can only happen once. And if we hear what was the promise to, or what was the covenant demand of Abraham, we read this. This is the covenant for you and your descendants. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And that covenant was to be continued one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And these military fighting men as they are, are now being circumcised. The obvious statement is, well, what has happened? The narrator of Joshua tells us. Now this is why he did so. We read in chapter 4. All of those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised. So that continuation from Abraham, they'd, they'd continued all the way through, through their slavery, through the oppression. Then they'd reached the point where they'd come out of Egypt, they'd looked into this promised land, they'd got scared, and they decided not to believe the promise of God. And in not believing the promise of God, they forget the covenant that God has made to them, and then they stop carrying on the act of circumcision for generation and generation. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. Isn't that, isn't that really, really interesting? That is, if we want to take what's gone on there, and we want to drag it right the way through three and a half thousand years to today, I want to just wave a huge warning flag to us. There is something astoundingly privileged 
in knowing the promises of God. But the reality is that when we forget them, it starts to affect everything. When we forget the promise that God has made, we start to live like that promise doesn't exist. And it affects not just who we are, but it affects everybody around us. And they spent the next 40 years living having been forgetful of the promise of God. I put it like this. This generation that had died in the wilderness, they've be, they had been a faithless, wandering generation. A faithless, wandering generation. What we've got the opportunity for now is a faithful generation who are on mission. That's the change that takes place. Because these people, compared to their ancestors, had looked into this land, which is still a terrifying prospect. Terrifying prospect. They've looked into the land, their ancestors, the people who'd gone before them, had said, that's a terrifying place, there's giants and all sorts. Don't go in there. They'd looked in, and nothing had changed. There were still giants. There were still terrifying cities, walled cities. There's still military power. And they look in and they say, God's given us this land. Nothing had changed apart from their view of the promise that God had given to them. Nothing had changed other than that. And so what they are expressing is their faithfulness. And they say, we believe it. There's a film that I would not recommend to anybody, but it is an incredibly powerful film, Magnolia. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of an, an assessment of different people, all caught at a particular moment in the storyline. And the question that is being asked is, is the things that happen next inevitable? Or is the way in which we can intervene and change things? And it looks at different people, and it looks at their backgrounds, it looks at all the things that had gone on. And for many of them, they are held captive by the things of the past, and they continue to perpetrate the things in the future. From memory, I think one guy falls in love with this, this young woman who I think maybe, maybe her mother was a, an addict or something like that, something along those lines. And it looked as though it was absolutely inevitable that the next stage was that she was going to go on that journey again. And the film kind of captures this moment where he turns to her and he says, this is for you. This is the moment when you can say, it stops here. It's really powerful. It stops here. I am not constrained by everything in the past. I am not constrained by my heritage. I am not constrained by my family. I am not constrained by everything that shapes me to be what I am. There is a moment where I can say there is a difference. There is a different route that I can take. 
That's what these people faced. Everything in the past says that they should be faithless wanderers. That's where they should be because that's how they've been grown up. Sorry, that's how they've been brought up to behave. They were their far forefathers and they actually say, no, it stops here. We change things. You might have been you might have been coming to terms with this idea of the Christian faith. And you might have been shaped by all sorts of things. There might be all sorts of reasons why it might be so incredibly difficult to say not that route, but that route. The message of the Gospel of Jesus is a moment where you can say it stops here. And there is a new way There is a new place. There is a new direction. That is what the Gospel offers and brings and compels us to believe. And it also says, when you feel as if you cannot do it, I do it in you. Isn't that amazing? That's why this moment is so critical in the storyline. Because their faithfulness at this moment is the foundation for the rest of the mission. It's rooted on the fact that they now are saying we believe the God who made promises to us. But don't forget, what we're trying to understand in this journey is what what does this say to us? Three and a half thousand years just short, this thing happened, this event happened. What does it say to us? Let me take you on a little journey. A journey which speaks slightly differently about this event. And then a journey which this event points to. First thing is this. What is remarkable in this moment is the way that God engages with these people. Think about it like this. Step one, the forefathers had been marked. They'd been circumcised, remember, because we we read earlier that the only people who hadn't been is the people who had been wandering in the desert. The people who had gone before, they'd been circumcised, but they behaved faithlessly. So they ended up in this kind of... It seems as though they started at the peak of hope. Everything looked good. They were believers in this God who had rescued them from the Egyptian slavery. And they end up unfaithful, and it's as though the whole of the nation ends up in this valley of faithlessness. Now, now how do you think God should respond to that? How would we expect God to respond to His people at this point? I think our human nature would be something like this. Look, you are down in the valley. That's where you are because you're the descendants of these faithless people. Therefore, what I want you to do is do everything. Go on this mission, and if you prove to be faithful, I'll accept you. That's good enough then. You've proved that you are my people. That's, that's a theme all over the place. All over the kind of fairy tales. 
Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> um, there was a newspaper report fairly recently of um, the, the kind of horrors of the sexual abuse in the fairy tale Sleeping Beauty because uh, the prince who saves her kisses her without any kind of invitation to kiss her. I kind of think it's a story really myself, but I think it's pointing at some really interesting questions for our generation. But anyway, let's not go there. Let's just think a little bit about Sleeping Beauty. It's kind of the courageous prince who fights through all of the battles, who finally proves that he loves Sleeping Beauty. One of the Arabian Nights stories. Go and do all of these things. Prove yourself the, the warrior. And then when you've done that, you come back and I'll accept you. What does God say here? He says, I accept you, therefore go and do. They haven't started the mission yet. They've just crossed over the river. They've done nothing. And God says, you're my people. You don't have to prove it. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to have come from faithful parents because you haven't. You've come from faithless parents. But I am going to say to you now, you are my people. What is that? What is that? The Bible's got a word for that, and it's grace. It's receiving what we don't deserve. That's what God does. And it's as though God is saying at this moment in time, in your journey of understanding what I am like, in your journey of coming to terms with what the, how the message of the Bible works, you need to understand this about me. I am a God of grace. First and foremost, I am not a God who says, prove yourself good enough and I'll accept you. We'll work on the basis that I accept you first and then now go and do. That is just, that is just the best news humanity could hear. Because the reality is, if we had to prove ourselves good enough for God, we would never get there, would we? We'd never get there. I wouldn't, you wouldn't. We'd never prove ourselves good enough for God. And yet God says, right the way back, three and a half thousand years ago, by this action you need to understand what I am like. I am a God of grace. State yourself to be mine and we'll assume that that's where we are because that's what I give you. Mark yourself as mine. That's fantastic, isn't it? It's at the very heart of the good news of the Bible. But we say, well, why don't we carry on this? For those of you who are interested in the way the story unfolds in the New Testament, you will know that in all sorts of the letters, there is the constant conflict of should we be circumcised and follow the history of the Jewish people or, or do we not need to be circumcised? That's the battle that's going on. It's a surprising battle because the prophet says that there is going to come a different day. So God's people 
later on, right the way through from this moment, God speaks to them in different ways through judges, through prophets, and He's preparing them for a moment. All of this, all of this journey is preparing them for the true moment of grace, which is Jesus. And in Jeremiah we read these words. Jeremiah chapter 31. God's made a covenant with Abraham, remember? And now Jeremiah says, this is the co- God says in Jeremiah, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put the, my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will know me from the least of, me to the, of, of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their sins, their wickedness, and will remember their sins no more. God is, why is that relevant? It's relevant because of this. The people are saying, I'm going to mark myself physically because I am carrying the law of God into this new land. The kingdom that we are going to create in this new land is going to be worked out by keeping the law of God. And God says there's going to come a time when that law isn't written outside of you, it's written inside of you. It's written in your hearts. It sounds like the whole of the Old Testament is about physical observations of keeping the law. Doing physical things to say, this is who we are. And God says, that's what you've got to do now, but it's not the best. (laughs) The best is yet to come. Because the change that's going to come is when the law isn't written on these tablets of stone that you carry in all of your battles, the law is written deep down inside of you. The mark is a different kind of mark. It is a mark on your hearts. Wow. What is it? To have faith in the God of Joshua. For the people of Joshua, it was to observe circumcision and it was to carry the law of God into this land. What is it for us? It's not to carry a law that's out there. It's to bear a law inside of us. It's to bear a law that says, I am now marked on the inside Chiseled into stone was the law of God in the Old Testament. That's the physical mark that's represented by the physical mark on the body. And now we come to a point where God says there's going to come a time when that physical chiseling into stone and the physical mark on the body is ended because the mark is contained right down inside, deep here. Let me tell you how that works. Does it hurt? You say, well, you you might say, I tell you what, I would much prefer the law of God on the heart because it sounds far less painful than the law of God in circumcision. I'll tell you what, it is no less painful. 
it is way more painful actually. Because the law of God chiseled into our hearts makes us recognize that we are so adrift of what God demands of us. And yet at the same time, the great news is that the law of God chiseled on our hearts means that we become observers of that very law that we can't keep. <laughs> this is madness. How? 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 How can that work? How can I have a law written inside of me that hurts because it makes me realize that I can't keep it and yet at the same time written into me is a law which I love and I become an observer of the law because it's written into me. Paul describes it like this. Philippians chapter 3 says this. Furthermore, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Let the law that is written on your hearts make you sing praise in your hearts. Rejoice. Be thankful for Jesus, he's saying. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. What's he saying? Watch out for all of those people who are saying you should be circumcised. Watch out for all of those who say, being a believer in Jesus is all about doing the physical things. And he says this, for it is we who are the circumcision. What's the circumcision? It's we who belong to this, this body of people. It's we who belong with bodily markings that are written on our hearts. We're the circumcision. We who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Jesus Christ, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Here's the way it works. This is the way that I can say I've got a law written into me which, which condemns me, and at the same time I've got a law written into me which makes me rejoice and I am joyful as a keeper of the law because I boast in Jesus who is the keeper of the law. And His law is written into me in a way which His Spirit works in me, changes me, engages with me, touches me, corrects me, encourages me, speaks to me. That's what a being a believer in Jesus is. Where we get moved from what we were to what we now are. Jesus changes everything. He is our hope. He is the center of our mission. He becomes the kingdom and the law that we engage with. My kingdom is love, He says. And this is the invitation. Because if God acted in a gracious way by saying, let's, let's start again, you are my people. You don't need to prove it. He says to you and me today, you are my people if you just believe in my Son. That's all you need to do. You don't need to do anything. 
Because as soon as you say, I believe, you realize all the things that you should do that you can't do. All, you th all the things that you should believe that you find that you struggle to believe. But they're kind of holding on to us is this, this thing which says you're still a believer in Jesus. When we feel as though all of the stuff going on around us is just impossible to bear. When we feel as though we have failed in such an incredible way. When we feel as though I cannot rejoice anymore. We've got this this foundation which finally holds us. When we're collapsed on the ground, the foundation is this. We are still believers in Jesus. And He is the one who has achieved everything for us. He is the one who's the keeper of the law. He's the one who's the great champion. He's the one who has defeated sin and death. Isn't it interesting? Interestingly, God's people are told, whatever you do, don't you get a tattoo. Don't you get a tattoo when you go into the land. Because that's what they do to say that they belong to their gods. What you do is you mark yourself in a way which isn't seen. <laughs> and yet, Live your life out so that it is seen. And now God says to us, the circumcision that you bear is right deep down in your heart. And paradoxically, the most unseen of circumcisions should become the most seen in the lives that we live. And you know what? We cannot do it. We cannot do it. We need the help of Jesus to even begin the journey. The change that goes on in our hearts when we truly say, I believe. Let me tell you this, it is an indelible mark. When God works in us in that way, when He changes our hearts in that way, it is as indelible as circumcision. It cannot be reversed. We are now who we are.